All right. Uh, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1, is where we're going to be. And uh, just we have been in a series now looking at what we're calling the story of God. And each week we've been looking at a various act or chapter, if you want to think of it that way. Not necessarily a chapter in the Bible, but an act or a movement within the Bible. And we'll actually do a little bit of a recap in just a second here. Um, Today we are going to be looking at the subject of the church, or in other words, the kingdom spreads. And what I want to do this morning is I want to pray. And uh, as soon as I'm done praying, I'm going to just kind of lead in with a question for you to think about. And then we'll begin to take a look at really the subject matter of what we'll be focusing on here today. So why don't we pray, join with me, and then we'll just jump right in. God, just for our our time here right now, we ask that your presence would just be sensed and known. God, whatever types of stress or worry or anxiety that may have been a part of our lives, even up until the past 60 seconds, we pray, Jesus, right now that we would just sense you here, breathing life, breathing newness, reshaping us, calling us to follow you. And we ask you, God, right now that you'd open our eyes, give us the ability to see what you are up to, give us the ability to hear what your spirit intends and desires for us to hear. So God, have your way with us right now, we pray, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to ask you a question that has to do with the church. So if I were to ask you, What do you think about when you think of the phrase or the term church? What comes to your mind? So if you were to like write down an answer, had you kind of write down on an answer, what comes to mind when you think of the phrase or the idea of church? For some, you might think of a building. For others, you may think of, you know, an oppressive institution. And yet for others, you might think of an event that happens every single week that you might attend. Some of you might attend once every Five weeks, six weeks, um, that involves music, involves uh, sort of semi-TED talk that is much longer and not as interesting. Um, And that's your idea of what you think about church. But some of you might be a little bit shocked and surprised to know that none of those ideas in events, an oppressive institution, or even a building, are none of those actually come close to matching the high vision that the New Testament actually paints forth as to what this thing we call the church is. So the question is, why does any of that matter? Well, it matters for several reasons, because number one, it matters because without a clear understanding of what church is, or the church is, um, we will either unwittingly lose the meaning of it, and therefore we will drift either into going about the actions of going to an event, and depending upon where you are, on the spectrum, as you go to that event, you will either be there as a disinterested viewer sitting on the sidelines, or even worse, you'll be a cynical sideline critic, meaning you will come to these weekly events and you will just judge and critique. You'll critique the sermon, you'll critique the message, you'll critique the music, you'll critique the lighting, you'll critique the pastor's haircut, you'll critique everything because you've lost the plot line. And that's what happens. When we lose the plot line, we lose sight of the bigness of what is intended, what God is up to. Or, again, you might even just simply think of it as just a building, like church is, church is a building. Um, but the point of the matter is, is I think that what God wants to do is he wants to help us to, cast, to catch a whole new vision and understanding as to what this concept of the word church is or what the church is, uh, as opposed to reducing it to something other than what God intended for it to be. So my hope today is that as we try to ask the question, what is the church and how does it play out, that there would be some answers, some clarity as to what this is. And even more than just clarity, that there would be a level of enthusiasm that if you've either been on the sideline feeling marginalized or disinterested or critical or radically confused, the hope would be that in seeing a brand new vision of it, and catching a glimpse as to what God is up to in this world, that you would jump wholeheartedly into what God is up to in the world through this incredible thing called the church. So that being said, what I want to do right now is I want to backtrack a little bit. And I think in order to try to address the question that we have at 
hand here right now, which is the idea of what is a church. And then we've got to do a little bit of back study or back history. Um, in a lot of ways, just kind of a recap. If you've been with us for the past five weeks or so, all this is just sort of somewhat of a review. But I want to recast it in one big overarching drama or narrative. And that's what we've been doing over the past several weeks. So we've been looking at the story of the entire Bible, Genesis Throughout all of the book of the spanning Revelation, the book of Revelation, uh, 30,000 above sea level look at this entire vast narrative and trying to understand what it is. So I want to do a little bit of a back study and kind of ask the question, what have we learned so far? And I'll kind of break this down. Next slide. We'll kind of give you some sort of uh, backstory as to how this all plays out. So number one, what we looked at, first of all, is that God created. This is the story, by the way. This is the story of the Bible. God created uh, heaven and earth, all things ultimately to share with human, humanity. I want you to think about that. And this creator God. He's a creative, creator God. A, a beautiful creator, creative, creator God, right? I mean, if you ever watch, you know, Planet Earth or Nat Geo, you realize that, that whoever the mind behind uh, the, the vastness of space or even the, the minuteness of atoms and all these other spaces in between atoms, uh, the, the mind that created this stuff is absolutely phenomenal. That, that, but this God that created all these things, this creative God, actually created then to be shared with humanity. Humans that bear his image. That's what we see. Ultimately to rule over it. That's exactly what Genesis, oh, it's supposed to be Genesis, I don't know what this is supposed to be. <laughs> Definitely not that. So somewhere around Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, it's 102. There is no Genesis 1 and 2, FYI. Um, so Genesis chapter 1 points out that God created humanity to share all of this vastness of creation with humans to ultimately rule. That's exactly what Psalm 8 does. It's a reflection upon the creative creation narrative. That man, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man and so on. And he points out that, that God created humanity to share in this creative ruling act over creation. Which leads us to the very next thing, because the second slide we begin to see that humans were ultimately, uh, that in order for them to rule well, it requires a vast understanding of good from evil. And you know this, I mean, especially if you're a parent or you've been around parents, you've, you know, you're a, you know, a, a part-time manager at Starbucks. You know, in order to rule well, you've got to have an understanding of right from wrong, good from evil, Right. So if you don't have a good understanding from good from evil, then you are subject, for the most part, to make up your own decisions. So let's say, for example, you're a part-time you know, co-manager at Starbucks, and the owner of the store has left. Like, you don't have the right to just say, I am the owner of this store now. I've laid my claim, and I'm now the owner. I will make decisions as to how this entire store should be run. I don't like the artwork of Starbucks. I don't even like the co coffee of Starbucks. So I'm going to go bring Scout coffee in here. We're going to start selling Scout coffee. And we're, you, like, you don't have the right to do that. You've hijacked your role. You've actually destroyed how the whole system works. And what, in order to rule well, humans need a good understanding of right from wrong, good from evil. And so what God says from the very beginning, he says, I will be the one that will guide you to discern good from evil. Allow me to, to guide you. And what humanity ultimately does is that humans were seduced by the serpent, as we see in the story, chapter 3 of Genesis, ultimately to rebel against God's relational offer to guide them towards good and away from evil. Third slide is we see that as the story progresses, that God, in spite of human beings' um, resistance to God, in spite of them pushing God away, in spite of them emancipating themselves from this God that is committed to them, God could have simply wiped them off, could have simply blotted out planet Earth and started fresh with a brand new you know, planet somewhere else in the solar system or in the cosmos. But he doesn't. He's deeply committed, for whatever reason, to these human beings on this planet, in this solar system, in this part of the cosmos. Just pause and think about that for a moment. How committed is he? He's so committed that he actually devotes himself, it's the word for that is covenant, he devotes himself to a guy by the name of Abram, or Abraham, and his family, that ultimately through them makes his promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that, he will, that through Abram, that he will bless all the nations of the earth, or all peoples of the earth, that Abraham's descendants, ultimately Israel, that we see that when Abraham passes away, he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a whole bunch of sons and daughters that they create. There's this radically dysfunctional relationship that they have with the God of their fathers, Abraham. 
highly dysfunctional, that their relationship with God is oftentimes more defined by distrust and then ultimately rebellion as opposed to trust and commitment and love back to Yahweh. And so what we see is that they repeatedly damage this relationship and they bring all forms of grief and oppression and suffering upon themselves and upon God. Now, again, the thing that's important to kind of pause and just think about this because for some, this might be a little bit of a stretch. How is it possible that there can be so much grief and damage and oppression and brokenness as a result of this? And what we said, because Yahweh is a relational God, God's relationship with human beings is to be one based upon trust. That should sound familiar to you because that is the very basis of every relationship you have. If you're married, it's, that's, the, that's, like, that's the stuff that a relationship is made out of. Those are the ingredients to make a relationship function. That's how you even have relationships with a coworker or a boss or a roommate. All of these things have to be in place in order for the relationship to become functional. If they aren't in place, if you begin to act rogue or be rude or be distrusting or you do things that earn you a level of you can't be trusted, you become duplicitous, you lie, you steal, you cheat, you do these things, you will inevitably do what? You'll bring damage to the relationship. Do you follow? So in that relationship, now you have this highly dysfunctionality that's beginning to take the place of any form of functionality. And now as a result of that, it brings grief, oppression, and suffering. That's what happens. Every relationship, and I would even venture to say that probably every one of us We've, we, we know about this. We've experienced this. This, by definition, is for many of us, it's our life. For some of you right now, this is, this is your life. This is exactly what you are experiencing. Dysfunctionality, brokenness, grief, pain, hurt. Because some relationship in your life, maybe a father or a, a relative or even a spouse, has done something that has earned great distrust and brokenness in that relationship. So you are familiar with the type of broken relationships that Yahweh himself is familiar with. But throughout the story of the people of Israel, we begin to see that this God not only sees his own people suffering, but he himself suffers. And this is where the story gets really complex and in some ways beautiful, because some of us might even begin to ask, how can God suffer? How does God suffer? And one of the most profound stories in the Old Testament comes from this little tiny book called Hosea. And it's in the book that God basically creates this, this, this picture. He says, my relationship with Israel. Remember, they're the sons and the daughters, the descendants of Abraham, who God made a covenant with. He says, Israel is like my bride. They're my wife. I love them. But my wife has had sex numerous times with other partners outside of me. And in this story, in the plot line, you're on the edge of your seat wondering, what will Yahweh do to his unfaithful bride? And on one hand, God says, I, I can divorce them. I can cast them out because he has the grounds to do that. But God begins to bring to the forefront the complexity and the challenge in the relationship and the tension in the relationship. Because on the one hand, even though Yahweh would be just in casting out his beloved bride because of their fidelity... He says, but I'm deeply in love with them. I don't want to destroy them. I don't want to cast them out. I don't want to divorce them. I don't want to abandon them. So what does Yahweh do? He suffers. And it causes you to ask the question, how much does God suffer? And when you carry that question all the way through to the New Testament, you begin to see the, the degree to which Yahweh suffers. And how much it costs Yahweh, to be in a relationship with a highly dysfunctional and broken community of people. But remember, God is deeply committed to humans because they bear his image, because he loves them. So as we go on, next slide, we see in the story that God himself actually, this, this should shock you, because if this was us, our tendency would be to be like, I'm walking out of here. Here's the door. I'm out of here. I'm out of this relationship. I'm stepping out. But what does Yahweh do? Yahweh steps into the mess. So that's exactly what Jesus being born into a manger. And he doesn't step into the mess as a conquering warrior god. Like Apollos or Zeus. Nope. He is born in the blood, in the water of a birth canal of a teenage girl to pause us to think. 
Why? Because Yahweh wants to take upon himself the full experience of what it means to be in the mess of, human, of humanity that has been brought upon humans by themselves. And he goes on to say, as I wrote it up here, that born to an impoverished teenager to experience all that it means to be a descendant of Israel and ultimately human, the grief, the oppression, the suffering, etc., while being totally faithful and committed to God. That his mission was ultimately to seek and to save those who are lost, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, uh, by taking into himself all the consequences of, of human distrust and rebellion toward God, allowing it to do to him what it does to us, ultimately causing death and destruction. This is what the cross is all about. If you've ever wondered, like, what's, what's going on on the cross? What's happening on the cross? It's so bloody. It's so, it makes us queasy and it makes us turn away and it makes us not want to engage with it because it's so disruptive to our nice, neat, tidy, orderly lives. But that's the whole point because that's what human rebellion does. It disrupts the tidiness of life that's what happens when bombs are dropped on children. That's what happens when a woman is raped. That's what happens when a spouse is unfaithful to their other spouse. That's what happens when porn addiction is allowed to do what porn addiction does, where it begins to bring about a desensitization to your soul. That's what happens when all forms of other vices are allowed to just run rampant in our lives. It brings both death and destruction. And Jesus allows the fullness of human sin and rebellion and disagreement with God to come upon himself, though he himself was always faithful to Yahweh to the very end. Why? It was his way of saying, I will allow sin and death to do its ultimate to me. I will take upon myself the fullness of human rebellion and its consequences to its full but Jesus had a trick up his sleeve that we know. So just FYI, if you're not familiar with the story, you will be right now or you will be aware of it by Easter because God conquers the grave because death, as powerful as death is, and how powerful is death? Well, fact is, according to stats, one out of every one of you, <laughs> you know where I'm going, right? We will all die. How powerful is death? It's pretty dang powerful. Nobody outflanks death. Not even Jesus, as it, he allows the consequences of sin and rebellion to come upon him. But Jesus is more powerful than death. God rose him from the grave. And that's what we see. That's what Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday is all about. It's, we celebrate the fact that God is not dead. He's not in the grave. Sin has not conquered him in its fullness. Death does not have the upper hand, nor the last word, God does. You realize how good news this is? Because this is what it means to be made alive by this God that conquers death through his life. And so what we see, Jesus rises from the death and destruction. Ultimately, here's where it gets amazing, inviting you and I to join him. You know this. This is exactly what God is up to. So for some of you who live in the land of death and darkness and alienation and rebellion and trying to navigate and figure out and be your own navigators of right and wrong and good and evil in your life. And you are repeatedly on hand cycling through variations of death and destruction. The invitation from Jesus is to say, leave that behind. Join me. Follow me. I'll give you life. And this is where now we enter into the story of this thing called the church. Because what we see... In the book of Acts, this is right after Jesus rising in from the dead. Luke, who tells us his account, his story, is where I pick up the story. So you've got to have a Bible here. So I don't, I don't have this up on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have them in the back, or I'm sure your neighbor would love to share with you, which means you might need to close the gap and sit right next to them, or have an app and open up. I want to read to you, beginning at Acts chapter 1. We will just kind of make our way through a good portion of this chapter. I'll make some comments as I go. And I'll make some final closing thoughts and we will land this plane. So number one, Acts chapter one, verse one says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with you. So what's the first book that Luke had written? Anybody? Book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. Right, good job. So this is like a two-part series, like epic drama. You know, author Luke, right? He's, he's making reference to the fact, I, I wrote book one, 
aka Gospel Luke. Now I'm telling you the continuation of the story because Jesus's story continues on and I want to tell you about the continuation of the story. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So here's the thing. Jesus is making reference to the fact to those whom he's talking about. He says, listen, I've, I've chosen apostles. So here's a question. How many apostles did Jesus choose? Any, any guess? Guesses. Anybody? How many apostles? Twelve. Good job. Good. You guys, you guys confident of that? No. Are you confident of that? You should be confident of that because twelve. Twelve. So here's the question. Why not four? I mean, small group would be better. Not only that, but the 12 of the people that, that Jesus chooses, they're radically different. They have different political viewpoints. Some are progressive, liberal. Some are conservative, Republican, to put it in that context. And all of them are called to follow Jesus. So you can imagine, and it would be far better to have a small group, but Jesus calls 12. Why 12? Why not 18? Why not just go really big? If you can change the world, why not grab as many people as you can? 500. Why 12? Well, there's a very specific reason why Jesus chose 12. Most scholars, almost every scholar would agree that what Jesus was doing was he was calling 12 to reconstitute. How many tribes of Israel? 12. 12. What was Jesus doing? He was reconstituting a new community of God around himself. He's calling 12 that are going to now be the leaders of this community, just like there were 12 tribes of the people of Israel that formed this nation. And not only that, but after Jesus calls these people, or there's a time within the time, timeline, and we, we didn't read this, Jesus actually goes in the wilderness and spends how many days out in the wilderness? 40. Why 40? And Jesus, right after he comes out of the wilderness, or I should say, uh, just before that, Jesus uh, gets, gets baptized. And right around that whole timeline, Jesus gets baptized, goes in the wilderness. What's going on? It's, it's as if Jesus is what he's basically saying is that just as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, and they disobeyed God, and just as Israel had 12 tribes, I'm going to call 12 to come follow me. Jesus was reconstituting a brand new community of people around himself saying, Israel, even though it's failed, even though it's gone off the tracks, even though its alignment has gone haywire and it's fallen off a cliff, I'm restarting it around myself. A new Israel, a new community of people that will be faithful to God. That's what's happening. And we call that the church. The word church just simply means called out ones or community. That's all it means. Uh, in our Greek Bibles, it's the word ekklesia, which just simply means people that have been called by God. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's reconstituting group people around himself. Verse 3 goes on to say, He, Jesus, presented himself alive after the suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Another really important phrase. What's Jesus talking about? The kingdom of God. What in the world is the kingdom of God? Well, we've been talking about this a lot over the past few weeks. The kingdom of God is everything that Jesus talked about, right? So let me, let me, let me put it this way. Jesus was not put to death because he had this formula on how to go to heaven when you die. Do you know that? Jesus did not get put, yeah, thanks. Jesus did not get put to death because he had moral teachings on how to treat your neighbor. Do you know this? Why was Jesus put to death? Because his message, his central message was about the kingdom of God. Now, in our modern day context, we tend to think of kingdom of God as just like a reference to the kingdom of heaven when you place that you go when you die. Now, again, there needs to be some, you know, untangling of this. Uh, for example, when you die, if you die right now, you go to be with God, wherever that is. We, we could call that heaven. That's totally fine. Where's Billy Graham right now? Well, Billy, Billy, Billy Graham's right now in the presence of God. He's in that kingdom where God exists. But here's what the beautiful, amazing, most nuanced, incredible, beautiful picture of what Scripture is all about. Is that Jesus is saying, this kingdom is not just a place you're going to go to one day in the future post-mortem. But rather instead, right now, this kingdom is beginning to break forth. Right here. Right now. Do you understand that this message is what actually ultimately got him killed and crucified? It was a subversive message. Do you know that Jesus' message is a political message? This might come as a shock to you. Now, if the way that we typically think of politics, if we think right or left or conservative or, or progressive, then you're not thinking that the politics of Jesus. The politics of Jesus is far more beautiful and nuanced and incredible than what is being offered in today's menu of choices. That Jesus is, because the word politics just simply means polis, 
according to the people, the polis, how Jesus organizes humanity to live. And what Jesus is doing, he's creating a movement of people that organize their lives around himself. Do you see this? That's what's happening. And he called this the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, God's order, God's way of doing things is breaking in. Not in the future, right now. It's happening right this moment. And you're invited to be a part of this. What does it look like to be a part of this? Well, it looks like this church. And that's what I want to keep on reading. Verse 4 goes on to say, While they were staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem. He goes on to say, But wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard. Uh, you have heard from me that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That this community of people, Jesus says, that you're going to be infused with the Holy Spirit. Now again, what's he talking about? The idea of Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. Um, so question, where throughout history, or at least in the day of Jesus' disciples, where did God's holy presence reside? Any, any, anybody? Temple. Where, which Specifically, where in the temple? In the Holy of Holies. Um, where was the temple? In what city? Jerusalem. Right? And Jerusalem was in what region? Israel. So you could actually say that the presence of God was localized in a very specific spot. When Jesus died, what, one of the things, there's a little detail that some of the gospel writers tell us. It tells us this, that the, that the, that the temple, there was, a, there was a veil, big thick veil that divided or separated the Holy of Holies, the very presence, the sacred hot spot of God's presence from all humanity, that that veil was torn from, the, from top to bottom, which is like a really interesting detail to be added. Why, why add that detail? Because as if he's saying that it's not rent from bottom up, but from top to bottom, that God is breaking through, that his sacred presence is no longer uh, isolated to a specific location in the middle of a temple, in the middle of a city, in the middle of a nation, in the middle of the Middle East. But instead, where is it? It's in God's people. Do you know this? So if you're a follower of Jesus, what and who lives inside you? If you're part of a community of Jesus' people, do you know that God's sacred, holy, hot spot presence lives in us? This is, this is their shattering, if you believe it. But see, here's, here's the thing that I think oftentimes we have to wrestle with. We really don't believe it. We kind of believe it, like theoretically. Like, oh yeah, of course, God lives in me. Jesus is in my heart. I pray a prayer. But do you, do you realize that sometimes statements like that are just rhetoric devoid of true, radical, enthusiastic embrace of its truth. Because the question then needs to be fleshed out. What does it look like to be a community of people within whom God lives in us? Do you realize that when God's presence lived amidst his people, God shaped how all Israel lived? Do you realize God lives in the very presence of his people, in your heart, in this community, that God wants to reshape everything about you? He wants to reshape how you think about your money, how you spend it, how you hoard it, how you are focused on yourself, how you either freely give out forgiveness and show repentance or withhold forgiveness and hold on to grudges. How you think about your sexuality, who you have sex with, how you have sex, in what context you have sex, how you spend your money, all of these things are radically reshaped by the very presence of God because God actually cares about every one of these things. So again, the question then needs to be kind of thought through. What does it look like to be this community of people? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, he goes on. He says, so when they had come together, so this community of Jesus' people within whom the Holy Spirit, God's holy presence was going to come within, it hadn't happened at this point yet. Um, at some point it would. He goes on to say, so when they all had come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus in his mind is like, are you kidding me? You guys are still focused on this whole thing. Uh, he says that they're thinking about kingdom that is like a militaristic, a military state. 
You know, God, when are you going to help us formulate our nuclear bombs so that we can drop them on our enemy, Caesar? And Jesus is like, you don't get it. You don't get it. Don't, don't focus on that because you're still in formation and understanding things. He goes on to say, verse 7, he then said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed for, by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, uh, he was lifted up on a cloud, had taken him out of their sight, and while they were gazing up into him at heaven, as he went, this is called what's called the ascension, behold, two men, believed to be angels or messengers from God, they were in white robes, and he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And then Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come in the same way that you saw him going up into heaven. So what Jesus is basically saying, it's a big mouthful. He's saying that your idea of when will God set to write this entire broken, messed up world and rule and reign as a physical, tangible king. Jesus is saying, that's not gonna happen right now. You don't need to worry about it. Right now, in this season, what I want you to focus on is doing what I've called you to do, which is what? And this is where Jesus begins to point out a handful of things. So the next slide, I just want to uh, point out a couple of things. So the what, like just kind of like a what, where, and how questions. I think I should have put question marks behind it, but I didn't. So what, so what's happening? The what is that his people, these people infused with the Holy Spirit, the holy presence of God, they will bear witness to the resurrected king. So what does it mean to be a bear witness to the resurrected king? It means to be somebody that by your life, you testify by your actions, by your words, by what you do. So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, guess what? It's going to sound kind of shocking for some of us. But followers of Jesus, believe it or not, follow Jesus. <laughs> it sounds so simple because it is, at least to communicate. But do you realize that following Jesus is not easy? Because when you begin to flesh this out, how easy is it to, to love someone that has been hurtful to you? How easy is it for you to give generously to people that you would consider your enemy? Instead, you'd wish justice or a boulder to fall down and cause hurt. How easy would it be to wish and hope good upon those that have done nothing but bring evil upon you? So it's, it's very hard. But at the end of the day, this is what it is to follow Jesus. This is what Jesus is creating. The word for this is disciples, disciples, people. Another word to think of it is apprentice, an apprentice to Jesus. Meaning, as an apprentice, you become like your master. So the what is, this is a community of people that are bearing testimony, bearing witness to the resurrected Jesus. Where? Where are they to do this? Well, again, he tells us kind of a, a series of places, locations. Where? Beginning Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's, that's where all they're, all, they're all hanging out. In Jerusalem, then Judea then Samaria, then to the end of the earth. So if you want to kind of put this into a modern day context, it's like, let's say, for example, you gave your life to Jesus in the city of San Luis Obispo. You met Christ either through crew or through Calvary Slow or through a friend of yours who shared the gospel with you or you heard a podcast, you live in San Luis Obispo and you gave your life to Jesus. So this, the way that your life as you are a follower of Jesus will begin to take natural shape, your life will begin to bear testimony as to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus here right in the first place, in San Luis Obispo, then in Judea, which is kind of like the, the county of this region, so a little bit beyond, like maybe Los Osos, kind of part of the county of San Luis Obispo, then to Samaria. Samaria is kind of moving into the areas that, for the most part, you would not necessarily want to go to because they represent people that, for the most part, you try to avoid. So who are the people that you typically try to avoid right now? Like, who are the ones that you can think of? Like, I don't want to go hang with them. They cause me angst, they cause me great anxiety, I don't want to spend time with them. So whoever those people are, I don't know who they are for you, but whoever they are for you, that's your Samaria, right? So as you begin to follow the way of Jesus, you will then begin to enter through your life to bear testimony of the resurrected Jesus into that area of people that cause you anxiety, then to the utter ends of the earth, like Brazil. How? Well, Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power and you will bear witness to me. So the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, will begin to take up residence in our lives and reshape us. So what does that reshaping look like? Or to put it another way, what does it actually look like to bear witness, bear testimony 
with our lives to the resurrected Jesus. And that's what I want to finish with and just kind of take a look at a handful of passages and we'll wrap this up. So next slide. What is it? What did bearing witness to Jesus look like? So in the first century, and we'll kind of, you know, update these or modernize these and to think about in our modern day context, but uh, for them, this is what it looked like. So Acts chapter two, verse seven through 12. It actually looks like there's a community, a community of racially reconciled people. Did you know this? It's a community of racially reconciled people. This is what was happening. In fact, you can make, even make an argument that the entire book of Acts is all about the, the, this big underlying question of who is my neighbor? And, and why that's a relevant question is because what are you supposed to do with your neighbor? Right. Love your neighbor. Who, who said that? So that's a great advice. Who did that come from? Jesus, right? Jesus, he was the originator of that whole, I mean, that whole idea that comes from him. It can also be traced back in the Old Testament because ultimately it was God that inspired the writers to pen that down. And this theme, love God, love your neighbors, believe it or not, even though that's something that we say as a church, we didn't, we're not, we didn't, that's not our novel uh, like idea, original idea. Like that actually comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. Love your neighbor. Natural question, who's my neighbor? (laughs) And here's the thing that Jesus would say, I'm glad you asked, because your your neighbor actually involves people that have different skin color than you. Your neighbor actually might even involve people that have a different religion than you. Your neighbor actually might involve uh, the ISIS terrorist who wants your head on a beach. That's your neighbor. Do Do you realize this? This is shocking. And this should cause some of you to bristle right now. Some of you might be bristling right now. You're like, ah, I don't, I don't know. There's got to be a way around this. Nope, there's, there's no way around this. this. This is the gospel. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that without this message being the very focal point of Jesus, none of you would be saved. This is the story of Jonah. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, Jonah is this story of, like, who is my neighbor? And God says, you want to know who your neighbor is, Jonah? You, you rogue, rebellious man of a prophet, you. It's the ISIS terrorist. I want you to go tell them to repent because I love them. What was Jonah's response? He was, he was angry. I was going to say something else. I would have gotten emails. He was angry. I'll be, I'll be PG. He was very angry. Why? Ninevites, they were the sworn enemy to the Jews. They brutalized Jewish people. They did to Jewish people what ISIS terrorists did to Christians on the beach in northern Egypt. They humiliated them. But this is the story of God. God is not like Jonah the prophet. Thank God. God is not like you and I. Thank God. God is motivated by a love that is disproportionate from anything any of us can ever even conceive of or imagine. It's big. And this type of love looks like radical racial reconciliation. That's what we see happen in this particular passage. I'm going to move on. We also see that this is a community that looks like it's devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. So you can say that this is a community of people that it's committed to learning. They're learning. So the question is why? So here's the thing. The gospel is this world-altering announcement. So when the good news, the gospel, goes forth, this is a world-altering, changing announcement that the whole world has been reshaped. I'll give you an example of this. When I was about 14 years old, um, I bought my very first surfboard. So 14, whatever, my freshman year in high school, whenever that was. And, you know, when you're a freshman in high school, you, you are already awkward, as, as, or at least I was, that was me. I was already awkward. I like, trying to make my, find my place in life, and who am I, and how do I fit in? Am I a jock? I'm not a jock. I'm definitely not a cheerleader. And I don't know where to fit in here on this, on this really strange, odd thing that we call, you know, high school playground. Like, I, I don't understand this. And I had some friends that were surfers. I remember the very first time I bought a surfboard. It wasn't that I just bought a surfboard, but someone even gave me like a surfer magazine. And what started happening in a few short months is my entire world was changed. Not only did I learn how to start surfing, but I was also, you got to understand, like surfing is, is a unique sport because it's not just like a hobby. It's an entire complete life system. 
It affects the type of music you listen to. It affects the type of music you don't listen to. It affects the type of people you hang out with, people you don't hang out with. And what happened for me is I, by, by investing myself in this community of other surfers, we we're all learning, and reading the Bible of surfing called Surfing Magazine, uh, we, were, we were literally becoming disciples, being transformed. Our entire world was transformed by the good news of surfing. We became different people. And this is what happens when you grasp the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he's alive. He's conquered sin and death and destruction and rebellion, all the effects and consequences that sin and rebellion have caused and created in your life and in this world. And he's inviting you into something new. When you catch this, the natural questions that begin to ask, well, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for my confusion with my sexuality? What does that mean for how I'm supposed to work out who is my enemy and who is my friend or who is my neighbor? and How should I love them? How should I extend forgiveness to somebody that maybe sexually abused me? I can never trust that person again, but how can I forgive somebody that has hurt me or wounded me? Or if I've caused pain in somebody else's life, how do I go about bringing reconciliation to somebody that I take advantage of? Do you understand this? This is what the entire New Testament is all about. From, from the book, immediately following the book of Acts, all the way through the book of Jude, guess, guess what? Guess who it's written by? Apostles. And what are they giving us? Teaching. It's the apostles' teaching. So who, what's the community of people? How do we bear witness to the fact that Jesus is alive? We as a community, we say, Scripture forms us shapes us, transforms how we think, how we understand who God is, who our neighbor is, and how we're to treat our neighbor, how we're to think about others in this world that maybe causes grief and hurt and pain. There are these, we can think of as liturgies that we set forth in our life, and they shape us. They're actions that we put into place and put into play, and these actions actually shape us. You know this? That... Every one of us, we have certain, we, we would call them habits. You would never call them liturgies because that's just not how we would describe them. But they're, they're liturgies. They're habits that we put in place. And for some of us, those habits are, are, are daily um, sit down and, and watching, you know, five or six episodes of your favorite show on Netflix. For others, it's like spending, you know, 45 minutes to three hours watching YouTube videos. For others, it's like, you know, taking 100 photos of your latte with your Bible reading and posting on Instagram. For other, you know, you get the idea. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that these, these are liturgies that we engage in, and they begin to shape us. They shape who you are. They shape how you act. They shape who you will spend time with. And what I'm suggesting is that the early church, because they were a community of people that were radically called and empowered to bear testimony to the resurrected Jesus, they had liturgies. Part of that liturgy was to devoting themselves to what the apostles had to say and to give them their hearts the level of investment to learn and understand these things. Secondly, or thirdly, we see that they were devoted to the prayers, which meant that the word that's used there is plural, which means that they followed probably the shape and the form and the format of Jewish prayers in which Jewish people had done for centuries. And then it goes on to say that there are communities that's devoted to radical generosity. And this is actually through the word that says, let me just read this to you. It says, and those... Uh, um, here we go. Where am I at? No. Verse 41. It says this. And those who received the word, they were baptized. And they were added to that day. In chapter 2, sorry, of the book of Acts. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, they were together. And they all had, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings. And they were distributing to their proceeds to everyone that had need. And it goes on to say, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number daily all those that were being saved or being rescued. And so this word uh, that we have in there is koinonia or, or fellowship, some of your Bibles might say. But literally what it simply means is having all things common. That's what the word koinonia means. And koinonia, for some of us, depending upon when you grew up and what type of context of the church you grew up in, when you hear the word koinonia, you're like, hey, we're going to have koinonia. That means hanging out at someone's house, watching a movie, and maybe drinking hot chocolate. Like, hey, we're having koinonia. But that, is, that, that may be part of what koinonia is or fellowship is, but that's not the robust depiction of what koinonia is here. 
because what koinonia means here, fellowship means here, is it means this radical generosity from everybody in the context. Everybody in this community means that everybody in this community is aware of everybody else's needs and or lacks, or lack. And they're, by way of being aware of this, they are calculating in their heads, in their hearts, saying, how can we help this person out? How can we, you know, figure out some way to make money so that we can help this person out or sell something that we have more of in order to give to this person that's in need? You know, the way this could play out in our context here is that when we come together as a large community like this, to, to one of the simple ways that your mindset could reshape and we can radically be a, a community that is unprecedented, that as we gather together, do you realize that every single Sunday as we gather as a large group, there are always people that come here and they feel alone. What would it look like if rather than coming and wondering in our head, when will someone come to me? When will somebody reach out to me in my hurt, my pain? That we had a little bit of a different twist in the way that we think and said, how can I find somebody that may be sitting alone and might look lonely or might have a need? How can I invite them into my space, into my world, to come sit next to me, to come be part of what's going on in my life? Or finding someone that might be going through a tough time or hurt or single mother that's trying to make ends meet or figure life out and to maybe say, you know, it looks like you are having a really hard time just with life. Can I, can I, can I babysit your kid periodically? I don't even want money for it. I just want, I just want to help you. So, you know, maybe three hours a week just, just so you can go get some headspace and think and pray and do whatever it is that, that you do. Like, like, what would it look like if we were a community that, that rather than, you know, again, I think oftentimes what happens is, is we, we wait for somebody to say, go do it. We wait for a pastor or a leader or somebody who's, you know, looks like they're in charge, to say, go ahead and do this. But what it, would it look like if the one that commissioned us to go through this was, get, get this, the living, breathing, animating spirit of God in you that was whispering to you. Hey, you see that person over there? They might just need to be prayed for. They might just need to be invited out to lunch. Or they're not involved in a small group. They maybe should be invited to come to yours. And they might need a ride. Would you be willing to go pick them up? They might need some bus money. Maybe you can give them a bus ticket. They might need a babysitter to watch their kid. Maybe offer to watch their kid. What would it look like? This is what coin it is. It's radical, radical generosity. Fourthly, finally, fifthly, whatever that is. Uh, it's a community that's devoted to life together. And I want to finish with this thought. I'm going to have some friends come up in just two seconds to kind of share a little bit about this. But what we see here in the context of this early New Testament movement of people that were bearing witness to the living Jesus is that they were doing life together. This is a phrase that comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a book actually called this. And uh, what we see is that they met in the temple, which is big gatherings, big gatherings. They come together and there's a leader, a synagogue leader or whatever kind of giving the scripture reading. There's a responsiveness. So there's big gatherings, but then also house to house, small gatherings. It says that they had big gatherings and also met from house to house and small gatherings. So they did both. It wasn't like if and or but. It wasn't like, well, they just had small gatherings. So we avoid big gatherings because we don't like those or they're too overwhelming or whatever the case is. Um, and it wasn't just uh, big gatherings with the avoidance of small gatherings. It was, it was both. Because this is what it means to bear testimony to Jesus. And I'll finish with this thought before I hand the mic over to my friends in two seconds. Is I, I'm going to suggest to you that you cannot follow the way of Jesus alone. Many of us, part of the gift that has kept on giving from the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment is we are individuals. That's a good thing that we can think for ourselves. You don't have to buy into group think. You don't have to be controlled by a tribe or a denomination or whatever. Like you can think for yourself. That's a really great thing. But the fruit of that that we see today in today's world is we're a bunch of isolated people. And we try our best to carry life's burdens ourselves. And for one, we can't do that. Number two, do you know that you cannot you cannot, I'll say it again, you cannot grow in the way of Jesus' love, isolated. In the same way, you cannot learn a language without having someone else to talk to that person. The Christian life is a language. It's a language that comes from God, and we do it in community. So that being said, we have a robust 
community, or what we call community groups in San Luis Obispo, that we are constantly looking for ways that we can do better and grow and mature and raise up new leaders, leaders encourage people to be part of that. And I'm going to have my good friends come on up right now. They're going to share with you a little bit. I'm going to ask them a couple questions. Yes. So this is Joel and Emily. They lead a small group. They've been involved in a small group for quite some time. And I am just going to ask them a couple questions. And then, Thanks. So um, as we talk about community, obviously, that's a really important thing, not only in the Bible. And it's one of the reasons why we try to make it an important thing for us, because it's scripture. It's about what it means to follow Jesus. Um, what have you guys personally discovered or found that's been helpful for you as followers of Jesus to be engaged? Like, how, how has that been helpful for you guys? I think it's uh, over the history of being in a small community group that's really shown the faithfulness of God over that time. Mm. I think we've been in our community group for over 10 years and led it for a while and stuff. And Although it's way different now than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Mm. A lot of changes. But it's easy to look at any particular point in time and see a lot of difficulties and see hardships in your life or in the life of others. But as you look at it over a period of time, you see the continuousness of God's faithfulness over years and pouring into people's life and using that fellowship together as a group to transform your own heart and build you up over that time and show you God's faithfulness and role in your life. Yeah. I'd say, too, it's just really um, humbling when you're involved in community, when you may not be in a position where it's easy to share, but other people also open their hearts and share and all of a sudden there's a community of people who seem to love you and invite you in, and why, right? Like, why are these people friends with me? Why do they care? Why do they love me? Other than the fact that we have a foundation in love of Christ. And so it's really humbling to be a part of that. This might sound like an obvious E on the eye chart, but um, being in community, that phrase means that you're being around people. Yeah. And people are messy, yes. and people are offensive, and people can be hurtful, and people can bring baggage. Um, has it been has it been hard being in community? What what are obviously for a lot of people? I think that he, the human element is one of the number one factors why I think people bristle at when we talk about being in community today because that means having to face some of the hurts or pains that they have they have in their life, whether it be from a family of origin or whether it be from another past church or another experience of a small group, um, or uh, or there's just this overwhelming fear of like being vulnerable, like like how. Have you guys experienced that, and how have you worked through that? Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely been true. We're a group of broken people in general, as Christians, as humans, and we've dealt with that in our community. We've dealt with um, loss. We've dealt with infidelity. We've dealt with addictions, drug addictions, sexual addictions, pornography, um, miscarriage. and Histories of abuse, rape, violence, things of that nature, and... Um, just coming together and being able to love through that is a really beautiful thing. And people are able to come and uh, appreciate mm. grace in one another and offer forgiveness when forgiveness is required, but also just to share. And it can be really scary. And we, we've seen that both with ourselves and with people in our community group. It's a frightening thing to share, to share that. But when you are able to share it, there was growth challenge, um, acceptance, love, forgiveness, and grace in those things. We've seen a lot of miraculous healing mm. over time in people's hearts because they were able to let us in and let us pray and let us be involved and disciple through that process. Mm. We just finished uh, reading through the Pentateuch with uh, Yobel, and I look at um, Moses' life over that time and how he started off as a really imperfect guy who didn't want the job to begin with and relied upon everyone else to help him out, Aaron and Jethro and all these people. And you look at his transformation after wandering through with his people for 40 years in the wilderness through all these struggles of life. And you look at him in Deuteronomy and he's pleading with his younger generation and his heart has been transformed into the heart of God mm. and wants God's word on his people before him. And you see how he's grown with people in their struggles mm. by just being able to regularly come before God and worship and sacrifice and praise before the, the altar of God. Mm. And I see that a lot in our, in our community group of just yeah. what it's like to live out life good and bad and struggles and hardships together. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone that might be, you know, thinking on the one hand, like, that'd be, that'd be really cool, but it's that human element that's it's keeping me from pressing in and distancing themselves from stepping forward into something like that. What, what would you say to that person or people? I think, uh, you know, a community group is meant to be an intimate place. 
and we do uh, premarital counseling here as well, and we talk about intimacy. And it's, intimacy does not, is not something that comes naturally. It's not something that comes quickly or cheaply or anything else. It takes time and vulnerability to develop, and it's a reciprocal relationship of being open and vulnerable. So if someone's hesitant of jumping into a group because of that vulnerability, then know that there's no expectation to jump in with mm -hmm. laying everything out bare before everyone. Mm -hmm. It's a process that comes over time of mutual respect and growth and coming together under God's name. Mm -hmm. And to step out in faith like that, you can be a minister to other people in you know, your own journey into that. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, yeah, I, I think somebody said it in the last service as well, but I think it's true that um, your own hurt and pain can also be a source of ministry to others around you. Um, other people have also experienced similar hurt or pain or ministry, and so just to be obedient and taking that first step just to be there is a huge step, and then just kind of rolling with the Spirit and where He leads and takes you, and yeah, as you know, Joel said it takes time and respect and openness on both sides. So I think don't think there's ever an expectation to mm -hmm. be laying it all out vulnerable right away. That's almost too much for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I think kind of something I was thinking about recently too with our community group, we're not all necessarily best friends, mm. right? There's no expectation for us to jump right in and all like be linked arms and skipping around about Jesus' love all the you time. You don't tandem bike ride everywhere? No, we don't tandem bike ride. Yeah. We don't always picnic together. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's really real, and there are hard yeah. relationships. There are relationships that maybe wouldn't have happened naturally outside of our community group. There are different personalities, different people, different backgrounds, different hardships, and it can be difficult to work through that, but when you commit to serve one another, that's when the real work takes place, yeah. and it's still deep and intimate and beautiful, even though we're not best friends all yeah. the time. Yeah. So. It's awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Um, I'm going to wrap it up, and uh, why don't we all stand? We're going to respond, and as you guys are standing, worshiping come on, come, is going to come on down. Um, I, I want to finish with this thought, because... At the end of the day, um, the idea of being radically generous, the idea of racial reconciliation, which is you know, obviously a big hot topic in our world at present, um, or any of these other things that we looked at that were part of all of these big elements, praying, radical generosity, living life together, being a community, um, following the Apostles' Doctrine, all these things, if these things are nothing more than ends in and of themselves or act activities that we're to busy ourselves with, if that's all that they are, then at some point, the plot line in which they're all attached to, really, um, they, they will spiral out of control and they will become meaningless activities that we just either do or we will end up rejecting from doing. But if on the other hand, something else more profound, more incredible has happened, meaning God has actually broken through death, darkness, and rebellion, and God is actually reshaping a brand new world, and he's calling us to partner with him and join in him, join with him, then racial reconciliation is not just a marginal thing we do. It is the very essence of what Jesus is up to. And praying, seeking God, committing our hearts to God is the very heartbeat of what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus and committing our hearts to being reshaped by the apostles' teaching is the very meaning of what it means to follow Jesus. Then all of these things actually have a new profound level of meaning to them, which brings it to a sharp point where we have to then take assessment at ourselves and ask, where am I? in terms of my relation to these things. Because if I'm in charge, then I can treat all of these things like accessories that I choose to put on or take off when it's convenient. But if indeed Jesus is resurrected from the dead, Christ is alive, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. If that is true, then he's summoning us to a new way of following him. Do you understand this? He's summoning us to reorient the entirety of our lives around him. So the invitation for you is to do business with God and ask where you stand. Have you treated him like an accessory? Have you been a disbeliever? 
what type of business do we do, need to do with God? So as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we worship, as we respond, uh, my invitation to you is if you need prayer for anything, um, maybe what you'll need to do is step out of your seat and come forward. Maybe just get on your knees before God on the rugs. Do business with God if, or have someone pray for you. I'd be, I'm happy to pray with you. I'll be up here. We'll have some other leaders. I'd be happy to pray with you. But let's, let's not miss this moment that God is maybe calling us to take advantage of the space that God has shown grace for us to respond rightly to him. So let's respond.